Hello, Lanky Guys listeners. We have an exciting announcement for you. We are going to be celebrating the Catholic Liturgical New Year. New Year, New Year, New Year, which starts this year on December 1st. So the first Sunday of Advent, much to uh, a lot of people's not knowledge. <laughs> that was convoluted. <laughs> a lot of people don't know this. But our liturgical New Year, that's New Year's Day for us. So the first Sunday at Advent, New Year's Day. So we're going to be celebrating both the beginning of Advent and the New Year with a live Lanky Guys podcast. So Thursday, December 5th at 10.30 in the a.m. at Drogo's Coffee Bar here in Boulder, Colorado. We're going to be doing a live podcast. Reach out. We're going to be showing it on Facebook Live. So if you're not near Boulder, you can tune in. You can interact with us. You can send us a little message. You can see what we look like, our pretty little faces. It's going to be a ball. So join us. December 5th. We uh, cannot wait to see you. Or hear you. Or not any of those things. Or or talk to you and see your messages come on the Instagram. Sense your virtual presence. (laughs) Uh, We can't wait. See you guys then. Bye. Hello, everybody. And welcome to the the Word Word on the the Hill. Hill podcast. We're the Lanky Guys. You better believe it. I am Scott Powell. And I'm Father Peter Muzzit. And uh, we're on the road to a million right now. That's Boom. what we're that's what we're living like. On not on the road to Emmaus. No. On the road to a million. On road on the road again. It is the solemnity of, of the Christ. Lord Jesus Christ, the King of the Universe. Bum, bum, bum. By the power of Grayskull. <laughs> it's it's really hard not to think of that. And I think we make the same joke every year. <laughs> it's, but it's it's I just see Grayskull Castle every time I <laughs> Dude, see these readings dude and, and it just is like it's like dude thankfully he-man's on our side thankfully jesus is on our side as well because he could beat he-man dude like for he-man's real. fickle man we need jesus we, uh we, there's a t-shirt right there <laughs> he-man's fickle we need jesus amen well i want to encourage all of you who listen actually to get your priests to listen to our podcast be More? careful how you say it, though. Yeah, they know. give really good homily preparation, Father. <laughs> you might want to tune in. <laughs> that's not what we mean. It's just like... More context equals happier priests. Yeah, that's a that's a t-shirt. <laughs> T-shirts are flowing today, dude. Flo- so our first reading today is from Second Samuel five one through three, which is a very important moment for the kingdom of David. Word. We'll get there in a second. It's a it's a little short reading though. Our responsorial it's song. Kind of, it's kind of a Zacchaeus reading. Ah, very good. I like that. Yeah, it's a treat. What? Tree? Is that a play on trees? It is a play on tree. Sick, sick. More. It's uh, our responsorial psalm. Don't drink on the podcast. <laughs> oh shoot! It's a Coca Cola. <laughs> no, I know, but because people don't like your slurping. I know. Our responsorial psalm is coming from Psalm one twenty two, verses one through two, three through four, four through five, and the response itself is verse one. I rejoice when they said to me, let us go unto the house of the Lord. Okay. Then our reading post-psalm is (laughs) from the Colossians. Mm. It's this chapter 1, verses 12 to the 20. Very good, very good. And our gospel is coming from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23, verses 35 through 43. Which is awesome because that's right before my thesis. So, um... Oh, yeah. Well... A little bit before your thesis. There's some space in between. Yeah, I mean... I mean, it's not like right before. We, we left room for the Holy Spirit. Ah. Uh, well played. Dude, so Second Samuel, like, this is, like, this is a very kingly reading. Okay, let me, let me, I, I don't want to do what we've done before and kind of reverse the what? readings. I don't quite want to do that. What do you mean? What? Are you accusing me of something? No, no, no. 
so I'm okay. This has nothing to do with you. It's not all about you, Father. Okay. I'm tempted to reverse the readings and talk about the gospel first. I'm not going to give into that temptation today. Oh. But I do want to just make note what we're talking about in the gospel. It's this is literally Jesus is being crucified. He's hanging on the cross between the two thieves. That's the scene we're talking about. And yeah. so the, it's the gospel is all about Jesus in agony, hum, seemingly humiliated being tortured with this question in people's minds of the nature of his kingship. Oh. Are you really the king? Are you the king? You know, this is sort of the discussion among the thief and the good thief and the bad thief. And so just to contextualize that. And the reason I want to contextualize that that way is because of the way that it fits in with second Samuel five, which unless you have the context of kind of what's been happening in the life of David, you're not going to get how profound this connection is. So, I mean, is this post, is this post uh, Psalm 51? <laughs> No. Well, what's Psalm 51? I think I know what his, it is, but his, what are you getting His at? repentance no, after no, We're way before that. Okay. Way, way, way early. Okay. So um, this is the moment. This is David's coronation, basically. Um, but even that's complex. So the reason I even hesitate to talk about it is David's coronation. David essentially has three coronations. Is, is the person who's responsible for the coronation called the coroner? <laughs> okay so okay so, okay so his coronation he has three coronations yeah yeah it's, well i mean in a roundabout way i guess coronation is the wrong word anoint he does have three anointings though so so here's the is thing is that the source of the We're, triple crown tier of the pope that's a, probably not <laughs> Let, let's give that a probably not okay uh, okay, if you go all the way back to 1 Samuel. So we're in 2 Samuel 5. So we've had a lot of Samuels so far to, to dig through to get to this. Um, we're actually about seven and a half years into David's king. Well, even that's... Okay, sorry. Context. Saul was the first king of Israel, right? So Samuel was was raised up by God as the last of the judges to go and appoint and anoint this man to be the king, right? He anoints a guy named Saul against his better judgment. He doesn't really want this guy. The people demand him. Remembers that whole thing. We want a king like the nations. And he's like, mm, it's a bad idea. But oh, they yeah. demand it. They There's get Saul. So many worry. So many um, warnings against that. Yeah. And so Saul becomes a king like the nations. He's greedy and he's selfish and he's capricious and he's violent and he's corrupt and all sorts of. So he's a disaster. And toward the end, I mean, Samuel, there's a point where he just laments. He's like, what have I done? I anointed this guy. And God's like, it's okay, Samuel. It's, it's, not, it's not your fault. The people demanded this. I allowed it to happen. But it's time for a new king. Right. So I want you to go. And it's this great scene. I, I did a Bible study on it last week with the focus crew. Oh, I, lo I love this best. scene. where it's they the just Cinderella keep on, scene. Yeah, and they keep on going. And they're like, hey, this guy looks like the senator, man. This guy's looking sweet. And then they keep going. And they're like, yeah, like... What well, Samuel sent to the family of this guy named Jesse, right? And Jesse has a bunch of sons, and God's like, it's one of his sons. And so they line him up, and they're like, yeah. And they, yeah, like you said, they go through, and none of them. And so it gets to the end. Samuel's like, do you not have any more kids? <laughs> like, what, what the heck? Because I'll like, tell oh, you, I'll well. tell you, Samuel is super attentive to saying, like, I'm not going to mess this one up. Right. I already did that once. Well, he did. I, Samuel's off the hook for this. God actually makes that pretty clear. But it's like, again, it's like Cinderella. He's like, is there no other step children is there no other sons here and jesse's like well i have david and he's out in the field tending the sheep but surely you can't meet him yeah that, because he's he's young and he's you know just a pretty uh, boy he's kind of a pretty boy he is described that way that's not father peter just making fun of him he is described with gentle eyes in first samuel anyway long story short he's the guy that looks least likely to be the king but samuel anoints him when he's just a little he's probably a teenager 
And he says, you're going to be the next king of Israel. He is anointed there on the spot, but he's not going to take control of the kingdom for decades after that point. He's still young, literally decades. He waits decades until this. So first of all, David is anointed king, and then the whole thing with David and Goliath happens, and he kind of becomes known. It's it's literally right after that. He goes and he slays Goliath, which is really not a story about a little guy who defeats a big guy. It's a story about a guy who places himself totally in God's will and says, I'm going to let God work through me. God does. It's a, story, it's a story about God defeating the big guy with the little guy. Through the little guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, but it's showing the, the character and the nature of this is who David is. I'm he trusts in work. the Lord. Exactly right. Saul is the opposite. Saul doesn't trust in the Lord, which is why he lets David go and fight his battle. Right. And then David, of course, everyone falls in love with him because he defeated Goliath and he is this great warrior. Slays his 10,000. Slays his 10,000. There's lots of other things that happen. And Saul gets mad and jealous. And David spends a good chunk of his life on the run in the wilderness from Saul, who's trying to kill him. And there's even a point I actually tell my kids this story. They love this story for some reason. Where, uh, do you remember this? Where David's in the wilderness, he's out in the desert. Close. Pooping? <laughs> David's not. Yeah, yeah, Saul's the yeah, yeah, Saul. so he's in the wilderness, he's hiding from Saul. Saul has to go to the bathroom, and so he goes into this cave, and he doesn't realize that it's the cave where David and his guys are all hiding out. And they're like, Shh. Yeah, well, and and he's like they're like, David, go kill him. Like, this is your moment. He's vulnerable. And David has this great line. He's like, No, far be it from me to to grasp this for my own. God does not want me to do this. If God wants to take Saul off the throne, God's going to have to do that. As for me, I'm going to be patient. I will wait upon the Lord. And there's this moment where he goes and instead he cuts off a corner of Saul's tunic. And when Saul leaves, he goes up on the mountain. He's like, look, Saul, I cut off this piece of your tunic to prove to you that if I wanted to kill you, I could have done it on the spot. But I don't want that. I want to give mercy to you. I want to follow God's will. You were the king repent, you know, all this great stuff. It's it's this profound story. But the point is, David waits for a profoundly long time to actually get the kingdom that he had been promised long before, which shows more than anything else, David is a king who embodies waiting upon the Lord. And even before this, so even then Saul dies and David becomes king, I think it's in, in 2 Samuel chapter 2, over just Judah. So he becomes the king, but not everybody accepts him yet. And the other tribes haven't given in. So he spends about seven and a half, eight years of, of king just over Judah. And then finally in chapter five, like 22 years in or something like that, he finally becomes king over everything. And th- this moment in 2 Samuel 5, 22, whatever it is, years into his kingship, he finally becomes the actual king. But if you know the story and you see this moment of coronation of David, you're like, oh my gosh, this guy, I mean, of anybody... I mean, so much of the one of the themes of the Old Testament is people who grasp after something that is not theirs to grasp after. Right. If anybody has cause to grasp, it's David. He is the king. He is God's anointed. He was anointed by Samuel when he was a little kid. He was anointed again as the king of Judah. And now he's finally anointed king over everything. But he's known what God's plan is. He just has to wait on it and fight and flee for his life for most of the time, knowing what God's will is. So this is a king who acts totally in humility, who's always beat up, who's on the run, who does not look like a king for most of his life, and who finally in the end is vindicated. And then later on he'll have his downfall, and there's that whole story. But there's just something about a king who is literally on the run for his life, living in the wilderness in abject humility and fear for a lot of the time, not grasping, not exploiting his own kingship and saying, don't you realize who I am, but waiting upon the Lord for his vindication to come. 
Dude, that's really, that's really actually powerful. That's a, the way you just told that story. I'm like, no wonder people like fell in love with David. Absolutely. And that's why still, you know, I mean, his name is mentioned somewhere upwards of 800 times in the Bible in some capacity or another, which is shows you the kind of mark that this guy actually has. But I think it's easily forgotten his road to the kingship. Yeah. We remember him as king. We remember him defeating Goliath. We remember his battles. We remember his sin. But few people actually remember the the total humility that he actually has to get to the kingship. Yeah. So that's our setup, and I, that sets us up for the Gospels, I think, profoundly. Well, yeah, I mean— I mean, you just described that whole reading and like, it's just this, it's a brief window into saying, yep, every, all of Israel accepts you. Yeah. And God is in control at the end of the day. Absolutely. See, David, God has been in control from the beginning. And David like, okay, yeah, I see. And then you get to the responsorial psalm. Now the responsorial psalm is interesting. So let me see if this makes sense, what I'm about to say. So the, the response itself is, let us go rejoicing to the house of the Lord. Mm-hmm. The whole, I rejoice when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Dun, dun, this dun. is <laughs> when they said to me. This is a psalm primarily about Jerusalem. It's literally written to Jerusalem. But at the end of the day, it's really not about Jerusalem, or at least not about the Jerusalem that you can find on a map today, right? It's a different kind of nature, right? Jerusalem, the Jerusalem that the prophets and that the Psalms talk about all nations flocking to is not this location that you can find on a map in Palestine in the Middle East or Palestine then, now current day Israel, right? Right. That's not exactly what we're talking about. Now, that it is and it isn't, right? But here's the thing. Here, here's an analogy for us. David is the king of Israel, right? Jerusalem will not be established as the, the seat of the kingdom until 2 Samuel 7, a couple chapters from now. Or from the first reading. Okay. But the kingdom is still the kingdom. Yeah. And where do you find the kingdom? You find the kingdom with David. Mm-hmm. He sort of embodies. And at this point, the capital is in Hebron because that's where David is. Where's the capital? The capital is where the pope, or is where the president, is where the king is. <laughs> so I was going to make an analogy to, you know, we talk about our church though. I mean, where is the seat of the church? Well, it's ever it's wherever where the pope is. You know, if the pope, you know, if, if, if terrorists, God forbid, destroy the Vatican someday. And the Holy See has to move somewhere else. Guess what? That's okay. Because there's nothing about Vatican City on a map in the city of Rome that makes it the heart of the kingdom of God. Right. It is mobile. God is free to use whatever he wants to do. The kingdom is embodied in the king. Yeah. And so the Jerusalem, my air quotes, quote unquote, at this point is actually in Hebron. If we understand what Jerusalem actually means, what the Zion of the Lord is, what the mountain of the Lord, it is where God's presence dwells in the tabernacle, in his presence, in his king, in all of these ways that he gives us to remind us who he is. Similarly, you know, in the New Testament, when, you know, again, when the, when the prophets keep telling us all nations are going to flock to Zion, to the mountain of the Lord, to the new Jerusalem, we're not talking about that spot on the map in the Middle East. And it would be wonderful for all of us to make pilgrimage there because that's an important site spiritually and historically. Yeah. But that's not truly Zion anymore. The kingdom is in Christ now. The kingdom is in him and it's in his Eucharist and it's in his sacraments. And those are not tied to a geography. Yes, it is in his people. I mean, it is in all those things. I mean, even, uh, you know, Hansers von Balthasar, he says that uh, those who believe the church is found. And those who believe and who walk after the Lord, the church is discovered there. Exactly right. Yeah, exactly right. But... But the, at the same but it's time, a both and. But we're, we're but but though it is embedded and embodied within the people, within the leader, within all of these things, there's also this really actually powerful reality that 
we are um that we are tied to real things yes like like we're we're tied to a cosmos yeah to we're we're we're, like the the created world is actually important profoundly important which talked about your lead-ins to colossians was that was that on purpose no, but I but it makes it so good. Your lead into Colossians is is profound because Colossians is all about, in a lot of ways, the the Paul's letter to the Colossians is a response to a a big problem of Gnosticism that's happening or proto Gnosticism. It's not quite full fledged Gnosticism. Just happening in in Colossae. Which for for those who don't know what I'm what, not going to leave them with that. I'm going to explain it. Gnosticism is of course I'm going to explain oh, it. Oh, good. I'm proud of you. But the but nutshell Gnosticism is. Am I going to, are you going to do it? You're I don't know. Do You're the one who started talking. Okay. Gnosticism says that your salvation is through gnosis, knowledge. That the, 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 the one who knows is the one who is saved versus the one who believes. Yes, that's a big part. That, that is fundamentally, and that's why I almost call this a proto-Gnosticism, because it's not full-fledged, philosophically formed Gnosticism. Right. It has the trappings of it. Yes. And one, and that's exactly the conclusion that it goes to. And this is, Gnosticism sets it up for, you know, personality cults and teachers with secret knowledge, and if you just buy my next book, then I'll let you in on the secrets of the universe, and that kind of a thing. If only is, you give $10 a month to the lanky guys, <laughs> then you, you'll get all the secret knowledge you yeah. can have. Oh, uh, well, just, that was a joke. Yeah, I know. It's a painful one. It hurts. Right here. <laughs> but one of the big trappings is is this, and we still maintain this today. We still have this problem. And most, I think it's safe to say, most of the major heresies in the early church are founded on this in one way or another. This idea that the material world is bad, the, the spiritual world is good. Right. Things of the spirit are good and higher and profound, and things of the flesh and the material are lower and base. And part of the one of the things that's coming out of this letter that Paul's responding to, again, so many of the church's earliest heresies were some variation of this. Jesus was God. God is God. God cannot suffer. Therefore, Jesus could not have actually suffered and been bloodied and died on the cross. He just looked like he did. There's a heresy called, uh, oh, what is it? Um, uh, oh, do- docetism. Docetism. Which doseo is the, the Greek word that means to to appear. He just looked like he suffered because God can't suffer. He's God. So how on earth can you say God actually was nailed to a cross and suffered and bled and died? That can't be. It must have been pure spirit that just looked like this. And Paul's response is exactly what you said. No, for God, the created world is so profoundly important. The things of material and the cosmos are so important that he took those things onto himself. Really, actually, a real body with real flesh, real skin, real blood, real bones, and all of that was really nailed to the cross. Yes. And really died. Yes. And really rose again three days later. Absolutely. Because God loves his matter. He loves material. This is why it's so great to be a Catholic, because all of the sacraments are based in matter. Water and bread and wine and oil and things. And words and presents and Eyeball to eyeball. Absolutely. So it's a really good thing. So so as we see in the gospel now, Jesus hanging on the cross and this question among everybody, including other people hung with him, beside him, saying, wait, what? What's going on here? You're, You're the hanging king? on a cross? Like, You're it? the king? This, yeah. is, this is the question that in a lot of ways Paul is answering. And, yeah. you know, and not, not to second guess myself and what I said before, I mean, 
you know, the Jerusalem in a very real way of the psalm is not tied to this geographic location, but it is a material real reality. It's not just this spiritual place off in the sky that we can dream about. There's a reality to it, but the reality transcends what you can search out on a map. But it's yeah. still real and tangible and we're, we're not Gnostics. We don't believe that it's, it's just it's, about spiritual stuff. And we have to transcend the material. It's substantive. Yeah. yeah. I mean, this is this is the thing is this is why we want to do a pilgrimage to the Holy Land is is like it actually makes a difference to be there. There's something that is has been supercharged there in the spiritual memory of that location that like that yes. like. I'm longing for the day in which we can actually sponsor this trip. Absolutely. Be, be precisely because though though the church is everywhere, the church is found here. This is the church is actually found on this podcast in your earbuds oh right my. now. I know. Lord have mercy. Lord have mercy. But it's it, it like the experience of it it can always be deepened in its mystery. Yes, absolutely. And and that and that every in, engagement with it actually draws us closer into the heart of God. That's what sanctifying grace is. Yeah. Is it's actually the increase of the life of God within the soul. And so all like so like grace actually increases. It doesn't yes. it doesn't it has no limit. There is no level there's no level that you can reach that you're not going to level up more. And in that in Christ is embodied all of it. And that's what Paul's getting in in Colossians, right? I mean listen to this. He is this is Paul's defense of who Jesus is. He is the image, the icon. Sometimes image sounds too weak, like it's a symbol. It's not a symbol. He's the icon. He's the physical manifestation yes, of, of the, the invisible, invisible God. God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him was created all things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, principalities, powers. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, in all things, in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body of the church. Saying, he, I mean, he, he's echoing John 1 in a very real way, right? In the beginning of the, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that has been made. Paul is just putting different words on that. He is the firstborn of all creation. Everything came through him. And then it come, all of well, that everything he takes on again well, in and, flesh. And it finishes in this way. It says that um, and to reconcile all things, yeah. making peace by the blood of his cross through him. So like w what's happening is that we're talking about Jesus Christ, the king of all of creation, of all of heaven and earth. And the, the truth is, is that the, cr the cross is the enthronement of Christ. It is where actually Jesus Christ takes on and says, I am the king. Funny you should mention that. Because that's a good lead into the Gospels. Am I right? You're right. Am I right or am I right? You're right. Um, okay, so this is this moment. Now, again, we've, we've jumped a little bit around. Um, but Jesus arrived in Jerusalem. Then we saw his interactions with the temple a little bit last week where he was foretelling the end of this temple. And I, I suggested not only is he talking about the end of the temple itself, the physical brick-and-mortar temple, he's, he's also talking about, about the temple of his body. body. Yeah, absolutely. This is going to happen. And so now he's on the cross. Now that temple is literally hung in the shadow of another temple. Or well, I guess, technically speaking, he is shadowing the temple in Ooh. hanging on the cross, if you think about it. Ooh. And, and, and again, you know, never even seen. That's cool. I didn't think about it either until just now. But really, that's kind of what's happening. I wonder where the sun would have been at that time of day compared to where Golgotha was. It's a the, fascinating the, thought. The sun went, went away. There was an eclipse. That's true. So he's not shadowing anything. 
Yeah. But because he is the light of the world. He is the light. So yeah. So but isn't that a funny isn't that a funny image? Not yeah. funny, a fascinating image. Yeah, it's cool. Um so there he is, hanging on the cross, the temple hung on the cross, literally. And the rulers are sneering at Jesus and they said, He saved others, let him save himself. If this is the chosen one, the Christ of God. I just want to say a couple of things first, just, just as a preface, because we've just come off a political <laughs> election. And I don't want to talk about the election anyway, but just to show you how strange and how outside of our frame of reference this is, um, the I mean, they're calling him the Christ, which means the king, right? The king of God, God's king. N- nobody's suggesting at this point, let's be clear, nobody's suggesting here, at least in this passage, that Jesus is God. Okay. They're simply saying he's the king. He's God's elect. He's the chosen one. He's the new David, right? All these things, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, Peter seems to, there's some insight that some of the disciples have into his divinity, but that kind of is, is more understood later. But that being said, there is this understanding that the king that we're expecting to come should be able to work miracles. Our king, our political leader should be able to take himself down from this cross and bring others with him because that's the kind of expectation. I mean, we don't, ex- you know, we talk about messianism and our politics and messiah complexes and stuff, but nobody really expects our president to do the miraculous and to actually suspend the laws of nature and do these things. They did. They expected if our king is really the king, if he's really the son of David, if he really is the elect of God, then he actually should be able to do these things. That is our expectation because that's how much weight we're putting in the king that God has promised us, that God can do anything through him. This is the story of David and Goliath again, that David, little tiny David, stood before Goliath and God worked through him to work a miracle. The story of David and Goliath, I know this is another issue, this is not a story of a scrappy little guy who beats a big guy. If you remember the story, David, the little shepherd boy who beats up lions and bears, granted, but there's this massive oh guy. Well done. There's this massive Goliath. David picks up five smooth pebbles, a little rock, sl- throws it in his slingshot. A pebble, a pebble, hits Goliath, this potentially nine foot tall, according to the Septuagint guy, hits him in the forehead, and he falls down dead on the spot. A pebble hits a guy in the forehead, and he's struck dead on the spot. This is not the story of a scrappy little guy who beats the big guy. This is the story of a total and complete miracle. And people are like, oh my gosh, God just did that. Yeah. That's what they expect from their king, though. So when Jesus shows up and he's making these claims to kingship and they're understanding it, mm. they're like, God should be able to do through you anything. Right. So how is it that you're hanging up there? And people are using it as a form of mockery at this point. But just to know, this is the ex- this is the political expectation of the people of God at this point in history. They expect God will do the miraculous through this person. Now, nobody really understood, oh, it's actually God himself who's going to be the king. Well, that changes things a little bit. But there he is. He's hanging. People are calling out. You saved others. Let him save himself. All this stuff. And then you have the two thieves, right? This one saying, are you the Christ? And again, Christ means king. That's all he's saying. Aren't you the king? So save yourself and save us. And then you have this other one who has this strange realization of like, wait, there's something here. Mm-hmm. It reminds me of why did all of these people follow David? Not because he had this power, not because he had great wealth, not because he had really anything. He was living in a cave in the wilderness for most of his life. But they're like, there's something about you that we need to follow because God is at work through you. 
So we will follow you anywhere, David, even though you don't have a throne, even though you don't have a palace, even though you don't have any of these trappings. We'll sleep in the desert under rocks for you because there's something about you that we recognize God is doing. Right. This wow. is what the good thief sees in Jesus. Yeah. I don't know his level of understanding, but he's like, no, there's something about this. God is doing something through this guy. It's not, it's not merely a charisma, right? It's not a charismatic thing. No. He's like, God is at work through you. And what he says is that great line, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And that word remember, in the Hebrew, if you were to transliterate it, it's that word zakar, Z-A-K-A-R. So he goes memoriam to zakar, kind of like make present. No, zakar is different. Zakar is not anamnesis. Or, okay. or a memoriam. It's a different word. In memoriam, I've anamnesis. Always, I've always equated those, though. They're different. What, what, what this is, is something else. So you see this term show up in the time of Noah. You see it with Joseph in the Old Testament, G- Genesis Joseph. So remember when Noah had the flood? Yeah. Noah didn't have the flood, but Noah's in the flood, and he's on the boat, and everything's going crazy, and he's praying, and he's hoping that God saves him. And there's this moment that God, it says, God remembered Noah. And it doesn't mean remember. It's the same thing that uh, when Joseph, technical or dream coat Joseph, yeah. when he's in prison and that guy gets released, he interpreted his dreams. And he's like, remember me before the king, before Pharaoh. It doesn't mean just don't. I mean, God, when he remembers Noah, he's not like he's scrubbing the kitchen table. He's like, oh, shoot, I forgot Noah on the boat. I better go get him. It's not that kind of remembering. It's the sense <laughs> of now is the moment I will act on their behalf. Right. So it's what he says to Moses. This is the moment I will zakar my people. Now I will remember them, quote unquote, in the sense I will act on their behalf now. So what this guy is saying is when you see your father, speak on my behalf. Mm. Don't just don't forget about me, but speak on my behalf toward him because I understand that you have the authority to do so. I don't know how he understands that, but he recognizes you can zakar for me. You can act on my behalf. And then he responds. He says, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise And the word paradise, I'm reminded of what we just talked about with the psalm, that, of course, there is physical Jerusalem, but then there's this idea of Jerusalem that transcends that. The word for paradise that actually shows up, it's a a paradisios. Um, Literally, the word that shows up, it means garden or park. And it's only used three times in the whole New Testament. But the the idea that you get, it's not just... um, it's not just a place where we go. It's not just this, oh, if only sin can be forgiven, we can go back to northern Egypt or wherever it was in Babylon, and then we can have the garden again. It is this idea we want to be a garden people again. Oh. We want paradise to be back. It's not this place that you can find with a compass and a map. Mm. If I could just find my way back to the Garden of Eden, then all this can be forgotten about. It's not that. It's the same idea of this Jerusalem which transcends. Jesus can forgive us in such a way to actually make Eden present among us once again. And obviously we reach the fullness of it when we go to the beatific vision and we are before God. Then we are in paradise in a very real way. But it's also a sense that when our sins are forgiven, we actually enter into, in a certain sense, that Edenic kind of a thing. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I don't mean to get too abstracty and... But, but that, there's but, something about that. Yeah, which which is really, it goes to say, it's it's like, don't worry about what you're to say. I'm going to give you the yeah, words. It's yeah, like yeah, yeah. the profound insight that this good thief is by recognizing within Jesus, he's given revelation in this way that yeah. you we're talking about right here. This is like, 
you know, like today you will be with me in paradise, like in relationship to remember when you come into kingdom. Now we're actually actually merging these things. Yeah. All within the midst of the enthronement of Christ on the cross. Right. This is I mean, that's it's like in in the liturgy. What we do is we bow to the altar because Jesus Christ is both the altar, the sacrifice and the priest. Right. And so so through this. Yeah. And so, so what happens is, is in the middle of the liturgy, we bow to the altar because it's such a profound entrance into what is actually taking place. Because the altar at the same time is the cross, is Jesus the sacrifice, yeah. is priest as he's offering himself. And what's being happen, what's happening is that the uh, Eden is being opened. Yes. And, and, and that, yes. that we're discovering that Christ is... Is king. Yes. And so it's like we say Christ the king, but we're just saying king, king yeah, of the yeah, universe. Exactly. King the king. King the king it's of like the table universe. Mesa. It's like Table Mesa. Exactly. Mesa Mesa. Mesa, Mesa. Um, pizza Pizza. There's a neighborhood in Boulder called Table Mesa, which table just means Mesa in Spanish. Anyway, but I, I should mention, though, that you said that. I forgot to mention it before. The psalm that we have is what's called one of the Psalms of Ascent, which means it's a psalm that would have been sung climbing the stairs literally to the presence of God, which. It just reminds me of the way that we approach the altar as we ascend mm. in a very real way up to the altar of sacrifice. Jesus is now ascendant onto the cross. He's literally raised above, and we go up to enter into that with him. There's, I, I don't know. I think there's there's stuff there. Oh, yeah. But it, it bears noting that that psalm that we have, Let Us Go Up to Jerusalem, it's a song, psalm of ascending toward the presence of God. Which is exactly what we're doing which in is, this which series is, of readings. Which is so wild because what does Christ do? It's the absolute unexpected, just mm. like David the king. Yeah, exactly. He, he goes into waiting. Now exactly. all of a sudden, the, 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 the enthronement of Christ is actually now three days. We have this, we actually have three days where we're, we're waiting. Now, all of a sudden, now that he's been crowned king, what does it mean? He goes to be ruler of heaven and earth. He is going to rule the domain of the dead and of the living like he like yeah. he, he's saying that like there is nothing that transcends my kingship right and i'm going to actually show you that so that it, like it's very mysterious but but rather than being a, of ascent it's actually he descends so that he may then ascend again right because right. Right. because it, it, he says that I, I am king of all of the universe. There is nothing in him. All things are found. All right. things are created. All things are sustained. All things go back to him. All things worship him. Right. It's He is all in all. Absolutely. And I'm just thinking, as maybe a closing note, him hanging on the cross, thinking about David, thinking about David's patience for however many years that was, Jesus literally being mocked and spit upon and all these things. I mean, yeah. Both of us, I know, I know us both pretty well to know that <laughs> if somebody insults you or I, or like hurls an insult, like yeah. you're gonna yell back. You know what I mean? <laughs> we yeah. want to yell back, but but the yeah. idea that Je- and Jesus isn't a doormat, no. But the idea that he is so confident in his kingship, he is so without guile in that, he is so, it just is that he can bear the burden of that, the punishment, the spitting insults coming at him. As people are like, hey, aren't you the Christ? Get yourself down. What do you think? You know, all of this stuff. I mean, if it was me, I'd be like, oh, you jerks down. Don't you realize who I am? I'm God. And I'm thinking of David. Like, don't you realize who I am? I'm the king. Mm. Don't you get it? Who, how, how dare you say these things to me? Yeah. But Jesus, again, not with it's not a doormat. It's not just, oh, I'm going to take it. It's this profound confidence. You get this sense, especially in the Gospel of Luke, 
even when he's on trial, even when he's being condemned, even when he's being hung on the cross, Jesus is in complete control of the situation. Right. He is in control. Even the questions that he gives back to Pontius Pilate and Caiaphas, right? Right. He is in control of the entire situation. Yes. He is not the victim. I mean, he's the victim in the sense of sacrifice, but he's in charge of it all. But but it's it's a chosen victimhood, not a something that's been right. enacted upon him without his consent. But to go through my life, to think about going through my life with the things that frustrate me and stress me out and that I, I you know, wilt in front of, to have the kind of confidence of it's okay. God is my king. I know who I am. I am baptized. I will move forward. The victory is his and everything else is just details. And I can be confident in that and move forward and wait when I need to wait. God's not acting right now. What do I do? I will wait for him. What does David do when God doesn't act when he wants him to? He waits some more and God is vindicated through that. I I just seeing a a profound lesson for my own life and my own impatience and my own stress levels. It's, It's a really weighty lesson. Ah, well done. Uh, On that happy note, everyone. Make sure that that love is just is is overflowed. Share it with your priest gently, and uh, and your friends, and, and your mom, friends, and, and your mom, and, and your son, and your dog, and um, and use this and teach. Yes, love Please. you guys. See you next week. Peace. Bye bye. The Word on the Hill is a production of the Aquinas Institute for Catholic Thought here in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. You can find us online at www.lankyguys.org. See you next week.